Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, I'm not a big clothes fanatic, but one of my favorite brands is Austin-based Howler Brothers. And if you're a Howler fan like me, you probably got your last order thanks to this week's guest, JB Saseda. JB built a logistics company that helped brands like Howler ship their gear to customers. And at their peak, his company had a 150,000 square foot warehouse, 150 employees, and were on track to hit 14 million in annual sales when a fateful meeting in an industry conference led cart.com to make an acquisition offer JB couldn't refuse. Here to share with you the full story is JB Saseda. Enjoy. JB Sauceda, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, how's it going? I'm good, man. Tell me a little bit about Sauceda Industries. You were in the logistics business, but you have a kind of an interesting backstory around the t-shirt business that got you into this. So explain that. Yeah, I, it's, it's always like an MC Escher painting trying to explain. Uh, I was in commercial advertising for like 10 years. I was a commercial photographer. Uh, one of my buddies dad's uh, like early in my career made this joke to he and I um, that we were never going to get rich if we were only making money if uh, when we were working basically and saying, you know, like a photography business isn't scalable, which it isn't. And um, so that had always like stuck in my head and fast forward a handful of years, like I, I was doing great work. I used to shoot for Wired, New York Times. Like I, I, I worked with all the, the major kind of national publications, hmm. uh, but it was still not a scalable business. And uh, a handful of years in, a buddy of mine had started this Twitter account that was focused on like memes and just sort of general satire for men and women and whatever. And, um, you know, I was kind of intrigued by it. So I, I started a similar account, but more specific to Texas called Texas Humor. And same thing, just satire about brisket, tamales and, you know, George Strait. And so uh, it blew up. This is like the era of Twitter kind of really becoming common uh, in 2011. And suddenly had an audience with like two or 300,000 people. And I started a retail store around it, had some t-shirts that were kind of making jokes about uh, this concept that Texans see the world through the lens of Texas. And uh, so the, the, the like famous design was this shirt that if you imagine the United States, uh, like the North American map, uh, Texas is solid and the rest of the, the continental U.S. spells out ain't Texas. So that like was this you know novel idea to Texans and they like it blew up. Uh, but very quickly, um, you know, my wife and I, who were shipping them out of our garage, had to figure out how to do this scalably. So we moved it to an office, eventually to a warehouse, and then um, it was going really well. But, uh, you know, retail is very much a, a boom and bust business. You, you've got a lot of sales and you need everybody that you have in your warehouse one day. And the following week, it's a little softer and um, you're having to kind of send those people home. So uh, I just had this idea, you know, to like start offering the service of the shipping piece to other people. I didn't know anything about what a 3PL was. I didn't know anything about the logistics. You said 3PL. That's 3PL. Third, third, third party logistics. Party logistics. Yeah. My audience probably maybe have heard First that people, acronym. I have not. But these are yeah. companies that that effectively online stores will use to fulfill their orders. They're like warehouses Correct. where you there's a you know a box of large t-shirts and a box of medium t-shirts and a box of small t-shirts and an order comes in and yep. the logistics company gets a a notification say hey put a medium sized t-shirt in a, in a box and ship it to this this guy and awesome. exactly 
Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, three PLs have been around and a lot, it's kind of a broad term that refers to, uh, trucking companies to, you know, uh, there's a contract logistics, et cetera, but, you know, around that era of 13, 2012, 13 is when, you know, D to C shipping, like all the digitally native brands, like Allbirds and all those companies were really starting. So 3PL was shifting from being this thing that was like a legacy service that was used to do wholesale shipping and distribution to like one-to-one, you know, you're holding for a brand and then you're shipping directly to the consumer. So that, that we kind of started right in that era. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the company at the time uh, was really just, it was this retail brand, but having come from the, the creative space, when it got out that I was no longer a photographer and I was now running this logistics company, when you think about like most early stage D2C brands, they're started by creatives. They're not started by like, you know, logistics operators. So when they start running into these problems, they're not, they don't even know where to look. So me, a guy who had historically built his business, you know, photography and you know advertising very publicly, I just parlayed that into the same strategy that I was using for logistics and was talking about having a warehouse and talking about, you know, the branding and things that like most 3PLs didn't really talk about. So uh, inevitably that caught the you know eye of a lot of brands that were here in Austin. Um, the, the sort of biggest one that we were known for working with uh, was Howler Brothers. And Say that one more time, JB. I didn't get that. Uh, Howler Brothers, H-O-W-L-E-R. Um, they're a really great brand here in town. They're really you know uh, well-known now, uh, but their CMO was the former CMO at Yeti and uh, Yeti Coolers. Yeah. And I had shot for them as a photographer several times. And so he caught through the woodwork, uh, through the, heard through the woodworks that I was doing this and was like, wait, JB Salceda is running a logistics company? What? And so sparked a conversation. And then, I mean, it was, it was really like a waterfall. I mean, once we got them and they took a chance on us, uh, we got a bunch of other brands and we were known for being kind of the anti 3PL because I'm a creative guy who was used to having beers, you know, in the office on, you know, Friday afternoons and, you know, music blaring in our studio. And so all of those things that were like traditional advertising, cultural, you know, things we embedded into a 3PL and that was not normal. Um, and so it really just kind of exploded. And, and, you know, from uh, when we found it in 2013, um, you know, we were in 3000 square feet. And by 2020, we were in 126,000 and we had 150 employees. And so um, it was a, uh, a very weird but rapid uh, growth uh, trajectory um, that we bootstrapped all the way to the top. So it was, it was a lot of fun and challenging at the same time. I bet. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because my impression of like, I use, I use the term fulfillment houses and it's probably yeah. because I'm 100 years old, but... My impression is like these sort of very dirty warehouses in the middle of nowhere and you go in and they're all dark and there's like dust everywhere. Like boxes are ripped open and like guys are smoking and trying to figure out where to buy it. And they're just shipping off crap to like, and they're making all kinds of mistakes. Like I have this, I have like probably old school, which maybe where a lot of, you know, your success came because all of a sudden this guy who's known for branding and had like customer experience Mm -hmm kind of rocks up and says, no, this can be done better. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're not wrong. I, you know, what's funny is that I, I, I've always said that the logistics industry is not the shipping industry. It's the exceptions management industry. And there are, you know, 98% of the companies out there see themselves as the first, 
And we certainly see ourselves as the latter or saw ourselves as the latter. And the reason that that distinction is important is because you'll hire differently when you think about the thing, like in a game of inches, which is what that industry is. It's certainly like a commodity service. Everybody's racing to the bottom, bottom on price. Everybody's racing on scale. And in reality, a lot of these businesses, especially the early start, the startups that we were working with that were doing between like two and 20 million in revenue, that group is just like, how do I get back to making really cool stuff? I'm tired of dealing with logistics. I didn't, you know, nobody gets into the business of running a business because they love running a business. They, they have something they're selling, some service or problem they're solving. Um, and everything else, the back of house stuff is just annoying. And so this falls like very clearly into that corner. And so, um, you know, for us, what we found again was that the people that we were talking to didn't even really understand the service that they were buying. They were just buying it because someone told them that they needed to. And so if they could partner with someone that they liked and they enjoyed talking to day in and day out, that was going to make the, you know, the process of, of cutting a check for something you didn't even want to have to spend money on a little easier. And so, you know, we were known for being able to take, you know, our clients are coming to town and we really, we take them out, do all kinds of, you know, like go get margaritas, do dinners, you know, I mean, it was really like, we put them through their paces, you know, on, in terms of just like client servicing. But, you know, I learned everything about that from having been in the ad world where, you know, as a photographer, that's what I was known for was my sets were really fun. They were really efficient. And, you know, we, we would, we would bid against other photographers, but typically the agency would know who they wanted to work with. And as long as you could be in budget, they were going to pick you because you were the lead, you know, kind of pick or preferred photographer. And the reason you'd become preferred is they liked you, you know, it was just, if you're going to have to spend eight hours stressed out in the sun, doing some work that you didn't want to have to do on that day, it's more fun with people that you like, you know? Sure. And so we just translated that over and said, why can't we just charge a little bit more, pay people really well, retain people, and then people will really like us, you know? So we, you know, unlike most every other 3PL, we didn't have time bound contracts. It was, you could leave in 90 days. And almost every other three PL of the sign was, you know, you got to sign it for two or three years. This is your pricing. Here are the really strict rules, et cetera. And we designed the contract to be about as mutual as it could be, um, which was disarming for some people to kind of see something that wasn't heavily weighted in our favor. But we did it because we wanted to establish a relationship like that from the beginning. Explain the so, business model. How did you guys make money? How did you build for your services yeah. effectively? Yeah. So, so the idea is that, um, you know, on, on, on paper in a purely academic you know, approach, anyone can do this themselves more cheaply, you know, more inexpensively, you can hire someone and do it yourself and it will be cheaper. But the problem is the carrying cost of that labor during your soft seasons. And you can let go of those people or just use temps, but there's an inherent, you know, uh, training cost and productivity loss that you have as you turn those people over. So the 3PL model is one in which, you know, we're incentivized to try to maintain that labor, teach those people the ins and outs of your business. And then you're just paying a unitized cost when we pick, pack and ship your orders. So we're going to charge you for storage, uh, you know, a pallet cost or a bin, a bin cost for each of the SKUs that we're, we're storing on your behalf. Uh, we'll charge you for the pick, pack, ship. We're going to charge you for the receiving costs as, as you know, inventory is arriving at our facility. But ultimately, um, you know, it, it's very much a nickel and dime business. But the difference is that, you know, it's you're not you're not carrying all those those people or during peak season when your business doubles or triples in size for, you know, a matter of 30 days. You don't have to figure out how to stand up this like 
you know, recruitment funnel to hire all these people. We got really good at that. My wife was actually um, one of my uh, business partners and she leaned into the people operations side of that. And we were exceptional at recruiting people. I mean, that, that was a thing that we did better than anybody else. I, I have no doubt in my mind. And uh, for years, I mean, we get calls by, from the other major 3PLs and competitors asking us, like, how are y'all doing this? How are you competing with Amazon? How are you competing with, you know, the other companies that are paying more? And it was really, you know, pretty simple. It was just, we were focused on the culture, which is kind of a fluffy word now, but, you know, you know, distilling that down, it's employee engagement, um, retention. You know, we had one-on-ones with uh, associates, people who don't typically hear from managers. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of things we did loan programs for, you know, hourly workers that were trying to buy a car or, you know, get a down payment for a house, things like that, that like most companies just don't even consider, but, um, you know, became a, a calling card of our, our business in a big way. What was your wife's secret to, to recruiting some of these people? You mentioned the loan program and, and the management, but what, like, how did you attract people? Because I think a lot of people are saying, especially these kind of like minimum wage, lower wage jobs, mm-hmm. it's really hard these days to, to get people to do that work. So what, 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 what other techniques did she try? What worked? I think it, it's a mixture of things. Um, you know, when you, when you treat job descriptions for those roles, like a commodity, they read like a commodity. And, you know, one of our core values was give a shit. And uh, I don't know if I can curse on here, but I, I guess I you just did. Ask, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but so we had core values that were pervasive, you know, which again, at some companies and ad agencies, core values are like the thing, you know, your, your product is your people. And so every company under the sun says that, but how woven into your business are your core values really is a question that you have to ask. And in her case, she really took those and, and, you know, rolled them out across the organization in in a really deep way. And so from a job description perspective, uh, you know, one of the things that she did was wrote them in a way that spoke to the people reading it, you know? And so this, this give a shit, uh, value, it's it, instead of saying like, you know, associates working for Salceda industries will come into the warehouse and pick pack and ship. Um, it was, you know, we're looking for someone who is, who is, who gives a shit about their work, gets annoyed with coworkers who don't pull their weight, you know, uh, wants to level themselves up in a big way and cares about being somewhere long enough that people remember their name. Right. Have you ever seen a job description that's written that way? No. You know, but it speaks to the like the human part of you that says like, yeah, I remember being at a company where my assistant manager kept calling me Jamie (laughs) instead of JB. Right. That that makes me go like, whoa, for them to take the time and put that in the job description will stand out as, you know, a thing. So that was such a subtle thing that she did that didn't, I I was like, okay, whatever she did it. And man, it, it was wild how many people came into the business and they were like, oh my God, your, that job listing just like jumped out. Like I had to apply. I had, you know, it was like, it was crazy. People, you know, this is 2013, 2014 people were like falling all over themselves for these 12 and $13 an hour jobs. And they were like, wow, I, I, it spoke to me. I, I'm like, this is a calling, you know? And one of the other things she did too, was look at little nuanced things. Like, uh, you know, we, we were recruiting people through indeed, but we weren't getting like a, a ton of, of, um, you know, responses to some of the, you know, uh, follow-ups. And she was like, you know, I wonder if we just shift this to text message responses and follow-ups and boom. I mean, it was like, we went from a 30% response rate to like a 70, because when you think about it, a lot of these folks who are deskless workers, 
don't check their email all the time. They certainly do check their phone. And so, you know, if you, if you use the same kind of approach that you use for recruiting white collar, uh, you know, workers, you're not going to like have the same response. And so she just really, you know, spent the same amount of energy on the psychographics of, of the people we were trying to recruit that we were spending on the marketing side of like, who is our ICP? Who is the ideal customer? Where do they spend their time? What are they reading? So that's just a, a thing that, you know, I, I will say that I was very lucky to have at a business our size, because I, I, I think, you know, a lot of, of small businesses under a hundred people, if they're recruiting in, or they have an HR representative, they're either, either using like a PEO, like an insperity, or maybe they've got like a generalist who is really there for compliance and HR. And Priscilla, you know, when I twisted her arm to join me at the company, she was like, I'm, I'm only coming on board if I can focus on this. And I mean, she, she did it in spades, but we both believe very firmly that any, any small business can do this. It's just about making the time to, to do it, which is, I know difficult. And, and, um, but once you do it and you take the time and it's, you kind of do that like on your business work instead of in the business. And you ask yourself, like, what are the goals here? Um, then it was like those learnings just played out over time. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. We were just out competing everybody else. So. And what's the backstory on the name? Because, okay, I got to be, I got to be clean. Sauceda uh -huh. is brutal to spell. I'm like, I saw it on my counter and I'm like, JB, what? Saucy, like I can't. So now yeah. you, you've helped me with the phonetic spelling. So now I've got it. But it ain't yeah. easy. And then you yep. name your company Sauceda Industry. Yeah. Not only can no one pronounce it, but they can't spell it. What yeah. happened? This is from a marketing guy. <laughs> yep. No, it uh so I actually um, you know, photographers don't build like commercial photographers who are doing ad work, you don't name yourself like hot shot photography or something like that. Like yeah, you might do that if like you're shooting headshots or something like that, but but like but really in the, the commercial world, the agency wants to know the person that they're hiring. It's very dog and pony in that way. And um, so when we started Texas Humor, I filed the LLC as Saucedo Industries as a joke because we weren't making anything. Like we were, we were using a third party company to print our t-shirts. And, you know, it was just sort of a, like, you know, more than anything, it was kind of a nod to the blue collar town that I grew up in. But like, we, we didn't have a warehouse or anything like that. So I'm sitting on my couch, like creating memes on a laptop. Yeah. Um, but when we started the 3PL, um, again, like I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. This was my first business with like real employees. So I didn't go start a separate LLC. I just started doing this under an LLC already had stood up. And then I actually debated at one point changing the name. Um, there was a 3PL here in town that was going out of business that was going to kind of sell us their customer list for a, a um, kind of finder's fee. And they had a really great name, uh, which was Fulfillery. And I loved that because a lot of the other 3PLs were like uh, some, uh, you know, kind of play or pun on, on the word ship. Um, and I just, I didn't want to do that. I hated that. So, um, so I, I like Fulfillery. Uh, it had motion and had some kind of energy to it. But when I took that to Ross, who's our other business partner and my wife, they were like, we're going to walk away from all this like kind of brand equity that we have that's wrapped around you. Like the first couple of big clients we've gotten were because they knew you let's ride that, you know? And, and so we, we did, and, um, and that worked really well. I mean, it, it certainly was this, uh, you know, my word is strong as oak kind of thing that like, as, as brands would come in and talk to us, uh, they wanted to work with me they kind of knew me. They felt like, all right, if he's running this thing, that's a, a really solid kind of, uh, 
vote of confidence for us, you know, that he's going to be around, we can call him, um, which was awesome. But, uh, you know, wasn't great in the sense that um, telemarketers could figure out who they needed to call when they wanted to uh, cold call. And, um, you know, with time, you know, the question of what happens if JD gets hit by a bus became a bigger concern. And so that, you know, what, what worked really well for us to grow and, and like build a business and build in public and do all that uh, became somewhat of a liability over time, you know, that we had to kind of work through for sure. Maybe walk me through that piece. Like, how did you know it was becoming a liability and what did you do to minimize the risk? Well, I, I knew it was a liability because, um, you know, there were some businesses that, um, you know, I'll speak for myself, uh, and, and, um, hopefully, uh, the hair on none of our, 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 the listeners fall, uh, back or the back of the neck stands up. But, you know, I describe like early to mid stage business, as, especially for first time CEOs like me, um, we all go through this, like, uh, do you know who I am? Itis, you know, like this kind of a little bit of like self-importance of like, you know, I've got a business, there's like 15 of us. And we're like, we're really like, how do you know? What do you mean? You've never heard of me or, you know, like that kind of stuff. And, and look, like, you, you need a few of those punch in the guts to kind of create that humility that I think develops with the second and third time CEOs and leaders. And, uh, when you're, when you're on your way up and you've got nothing but wins, like you can get a little bit, uh, you know, high in the hog, um, as we say in Texas. And so, um, and so the, the challenge with running a business with your name attached to it is that even when you're trying desperately to like really create leverage and like, you know, uh, elevate, delegate and elevate people in your business, for your clients to go to them to like really create and so create solutions to problems. They still want to call you. They still want to text you. They still want to like go directly to you. And that, that was a challenge. Um, not only because like I, I, at a certain point, um, I didn't want to hear it. Like it was hard for me to, to think about the business in the long term when I was being pulled into the day to day. Um, but I'm also just not wired to be that problem solver that you want. Like I'm, I'm a creative guy. Like I'm over here doing the dog and pony show building the culture that is creating the product that you want to work with. And if you're, you're calling me, like, I'm, I'm going to lose my, you know, uh, I'm going to lose uh, the sort of interest or not interest, but like, I don't have the attention span and the tenacity to solve this like very specific thing in your business. And you hired our company for that. So I like, I need you to go to them. I, I can convey the importance of solving this problem to our team, but like actually doing it won't, happen through me. And, and that increasingly becomes a challenge, you know? And so for me, as someone who had built multiple businesses, even Texas humor, like was associated with me personally, it wasn't my name and people didn't really know that, but they knew my face. That was a little bit of a challenge that like, you know, I had to really navigate in the latter half of building the company. And, um, that came from, you know, a lot of really tough conversations with our employees who were frustrated that, I inject myself into problems, maybe frustrated that things weren't happening fast enough. And I'd want to throw my weight around and they're like, it's happening at the speed it should. And you're trying to kind of break the system. So like go away that, that, that helped a lot. Um, I joined EO, which taught me that, you know, to like ditch the self-importance and, uh, that, you know, the name is valuable, but like the name should become a brand and not, JB, like it shouldn't continue to be me. So like let other people use the name in the way that they would, you know, fulfillery or whatever else, like let that wrap around people and represent like what the values are, but it shouldn't be you. And 
that that was huge. I mean, that that was you know something that really uh, resonated with me. And as a storyteller and somebody who like really enjoys the the narrative part of running a business and the internal comms part of the business, uh, it was really freeing and it gave me um, you know a lot of opportunities to really interact with the business in a different way and and use the platform that I built for myself to kind of like grow the company to then talk about our people more directly and specifically. And that that really I think helped them feel great and, and like, you know, seen and heard internally. Um, and over time, I mean, it, it was really awesome to see the number of our clients who really, you know, when they would hear or talk about Salseda, it wasn't like, we love working with JB. It was like, oh my God, I, I can't imagine a life without Kasha or Cody or Logan or RJ, like those people's names were more of it. And then it became like Sauce Fam or the Salseda way. And like, and so then it like transcended me in this really awesome way, but it, it took deliberate work. And how did you um, do that? Because you know, I think a lot of our listeners, yeah. maybe they, their surnames are in their company name, or or just at least they are synonymous with the service they provide, and you know their customers want them personally to to take care of their account. And and it sounds like you were able to codify and and start to delineate between JB Saseda the person and Saseda mm-hmm. the brand. I'd be curious mm-hmm. to know what you did to to transfer JB the person into a brand. I think that you know historically, I, I'm like a very ADD, run to the problem, run to the idea person. You know, like 30 seconds before we were jumping on here, I had an idea for LinkedIn posts. I was hammering out. So like, I, you know, frameworks are my friend, and they really help give me structure to wrap the ideas around. And we were lucky around 2017 to stumble upon EOS. You know, there are a million of these systems out there, but EOS for, you know, anyone listening is a great framework. It's a lot like scaling up or Rockefeller habits and the other kind of systems for running your company. Um, But the gist of it, like EOS is kind of the less important detail. What's more important is that it taught us to really think uh, about things like our core values, our mission statement, how we did performance management, um, how we communicated internally at the company. Um, and all of that stuff collectively. And so for each of us, you know, my wife uh, on the people side, for me, kind of operationally and from a marketing perspective, and for Ross, you know, operationally, it gave us a way to kind of think about how to package the business, you know, and, and you know, I, I still have here, I'm literally sitting here, I don't, I'm not even running a company today, but like I have the EOS, I kind of process, you know, they're a little like, you know, multi-step, this is how we, how we work with you. You know, and that, and for them, it's like how EOS works with us. So, so for us, we sat down and thought about that. Like, what does it mean to be an employee at Salsa Industries? Like, what does it mean to get hired here, to get retained, to be exited if it's not the right fit? Uh, what does that mean for customers? Like, what is the process and what are the, the specifics that will make you a great fit or not? Um, and all of that packaged together over time you know, gave us a framework that allowed everybody to know that we were on the same page and they could grab it and run with it. And so what, what, what took place was that as we shifted from this like top down cultural approach to one where our values were embedded into our, our performance management and into our job descriptions and into like Slack emojis. And, uh, you know, when somebody would do something above and beyond for a client, like it wasn't a good job. It was, oh my God, they were giving a shit or they were exploring more. They were saying yes. And like that stuff really subtle, right? It's a coat of paint over just like basic human behavior. That stuff became unique to us. And so it wasn't just 
what every company would say, which is like going above and beyond. It was saying yes and, which was a core value. And like these subtle little things had a, a coat of that like brand paint on them that everybody could take. And then everybody felt like they, they knew it when they saw it, right? It's like the old, um, the old uh, obscenity Supreme Court quote, you know, I don't, I, I can't uh, describe it, pornography, but, I, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> I know it when I see it. Right. Yeah. And so that, that, that in a way is like when, you know, you've arrived and a system like a framework really helps you get there. And so my suggestion to you know people is really pick a system. Um, don't keep trying to reinvent the wheel. A lot of these things are really basic, like performance management in particular, doesn't really have to be more complicated than, um, you know, here are core values, each one. Are you below at or above exceeding each of these values? And that can be a, you know, a, a, a specific measurable thing. And when you, you give people a sense of like what it means to, to be in or outside of the values, they start to operate, they kind of like interpret what you would want as a leader and what you would want as a C-suite. Um, and, and they start to do these things on their own. And like, I, I would tell people all the time that my favorite experiences in running a company were in the latter half when suddenly like the, the company and the people there would just like do stuff I had no idea was being worked on. And I'd go like, oh my God, I'd never thought of that, you know? And, and that's really, I, I think that, that the, like the, the sort of arrival moment for any leader is when you can like, trust enough and create enough trust in your company that people do things that you're like really excited about and you had no idea or no part in, you know, that's, that's, I think that, that kind of like process. That's super helpful. How did you deal with employees who let customers down mm -hmm. given that your name was on the door? I think a lot of founders struggle when their surname is in the company name mm -hmm. and, and a customer's disappointed. They have a bad experience for whatever reason, employee has a bad day or whatever. And they just, they, they fall short of expectations and it's all of a sudden no longer just the company letting an, you know, customer down. It's like you personally, JB, your name is on the door and you've let them down. There's a personal, you know, how did you overcome that? Because with 150 employees, shit happens, right? Yeah. It's not always perfect. Yeah. It, that never went away. Do you know I mean, what I'm asking though? Like, first of all, like, do you no, know, I know. Like, yeah. like, like, no, I, you know, I, I, I think the best, example I can give of what was a real turning point for me is like a leader and, and like, you have to understand that that's going to happen, right? Like you don't get the good without the bad. And mm -hmm. so like that, I, I eventually figured out. And, th and that was true even as a photographer. But, um, I think where the, the, the thing that really taught me how to like shift from playing whack-a-mole in those scenarios to like strategic chess with a business was this, article that I think it was, a, it was like an example in HBR and the Harvard Business Review or one of the, these sort of like management um, uh, periodicals. And it said, if, you know, if you want your kid to stop using their cell phone at the dinner table, go to the why. So they understand what you is, what you value. Don't go to the policy. So if your kid's using the cell phone at the dinner table, and you just take the, the the cell phone away, they still want the cell phone. And all they think about is the fact that you asked them to take it away. But if instead over time you teach them that the reason that we don't use cell phones at the table is because we value time, spending time with one another, that like 
makes the cell phone less cool in a way, right? I mean, with teenagers or kids, you still got to work it out over time. But, but there's a difference between sort of strategy and policy. Policy is black and white, what you do and don't do. Strategy is like a guiding principle that helps you figure out what to do or not to do in each instance in which it, like, you know, something comes up. And so that was really, I think, when I became okay with these issues playing out because, you know, things would happen and they were bad and I'd jump into them in the early stage of our business. And then it was like, oh, I, hey guys, I, I took care of it. Yeah, I don't know what was going on with them, you know, and, and but it was exhausting. But where, where I could certainly spend my time was that like with time, like over time, as the business got bigger, we had more and more clients. We're doing 100, 130,000 packages a month. Stuff goes wrong. It's exceptions management industry. You know, what I could certainly jump in and help with was like when really bad things happen, then I could step in and say, look, like here, here's what led to this situation. And, you know, our customers would understand it. And if they didn't, and they were really over the top and, and they were just like, I, I still need my pound of flesh for, for me to feel better about the situation. It was a sign to me that like that customer just wasn't the right fit, you know? And it wasn't like a flip the table over, like, if, if you can't forgive me, get the hell out of here. That's not what we were working towards. But if, if like working together with us in a professional relationship meant that there was just, you always needed to, to like create pain for us, um, that's against our values too. And, and so ultimately the right clients stuck with us and they'd be frustrated. They'd call us, but we could like talk it off the ledge and, and both of us would be like, oh yeah. You know, the client would typically say like, here's what we did to contribute to the problem too, you know? Um, but it was because there was such strong cultural alignment. Did you ever that, have situations where people, like a customer would say, like, I demand to talk to JB? Yeah. That happened all the How time. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'd have those conversations, but nine times out of 10, I'd also ask like, you know, how have we arrived here? You know, have, have we, I have like a really simple framework I use for myself, which is like self-system person. And so our account servicing team was known for, um, you know, starting with self. Like if a customer is losing their mind, let's not just call them crazy. Let's ask like, what did we do to create this situation? And, and, you know, sometimes we'd have reasons that they might be pissed off at us. And sometimes we're like, we really, I, I think we did everything right here, you know, and, and the system's working the way it should. They are just really tough. Um, but it was, it was a self-aware approach to account management. And um, sometimes I would just refuse and I'd say, hey, look, like, I don't think we've done enough here, or I don't think that they're being reasonable and they need to work it out through y'all. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I take it on the chin. I got really good at uh, getting punched <laughs> in the face, um, but that's logistics, you know, and, and that's kind of what you sign up for when you get into that industry. But, uh, but again, it was... It was why from the very beginning, we got so much better at filtering out. We weren't perfect at this. Early on, we took on a lot of bad clients, but like over time, who we didn't work with was more important than who we did because then it, may, it meant that we were, we were working on this like foundation of trust, right? Like I'm a big believer in Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, that book. Sure. And yeah. you know, his, his whole concept is that like, if you don't have trust, you don't have accountability, you don't, you know, like everything else that kind of falls as a result. And so if I can't work with a client uh, that trusts me, then I shouldn't work with them. And so as we got better at that, we got better at, at you know, finding employees who are our clients trusted. And over time, 
you know, most of our, our clients didn't really want to hear from me because they were like, yeah, whatever. Like he's here and he's just going to tell them what to do anyway. Let's just work it out with them, you know, which was like, that was great. Um, it didn't mean that I didn't still get the tough emails. I mean, 2020, that was a stressful time for all of our clients. And there were some, there were some tough emails that I got from people, um, on the daily, uh, during some periods of that. But, uh, you know, it, it I shifted into being politician more than I, I had to be like the operator, you know, and, and, uh, I had to, you know, shake hands and kiss babies just as much as get out in the warehouse and ship order sometimes. So. so walk me through where you got with this business. You mentioned you got to 150 employees by 2020, 126,000 square foot facility. Ballpark mm-hmm. kind of revenue. Are you able to share revenue or not? Yeah. Yeah. When we were, when we sold the company, we were on track to do about 14 million in top line. Um, and, um, you know, 2020 was a huge boon. I mean, we basically doubled in size in the latter couple of years. Um, every every year, um, we went from you know four and a half to roughly eight, and then uh, 2020 um, we started not slowed down, but I mean, like doubling in size as 3PL is really tough. You know, but we went um, from like a 10,000 square foot warehouse at around 2018 to 20,000, and then uh, right around 2019 moved into a 60,000 and then 2020 like drove us into 125,000. So it was just boom, 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 boom. Um, but yeah, around 14 million in revenue. And, um, you know, the, one of the biggest things that really drove that growth was we, we launched the Shopify fulfillment network, which, uh, has been in the news here this year cause they, they spun it off to Flexport. And, um, but we went, when that program started, it was intended to be sort of a mom and pop network of three PLs. And so, uh, for a, a handful of reasons, uh, cultural reasons specifically, uh, we were selected to be the 3PL to launch that. And so we launched that in private uh, or confidentially in 2018 and then publicly in 2019. Um, and then it blew up in 2020. So um, that was a, a crazy trajectory to go from, you know, effectively 10,000 square feet to 126 in about two and a half, three years. What so, made you decide to sell? 2020, to be honest. Um it was a lot. Like I, I, I kind of got to a point where, you know, operationally, I felt like I was getting ahead of my skis. Like I didn't really have all of the skills that I felt like I needed to take the business and double it again. Um, you know, it was growing at a pace that I was able to keep it together. Um, but I, you know, we were growing a, a low margin business in a capital intensive industry. Um, and for us to really start, like, keep the pace and keep up with where the industry was going, I felt like either needed to raise money or sell to like a strategic, you know, acquirer. So in 2021, I just told my wife, I said, look, like there are more zeros behind every question or problem that comes up now, uh, which is scarier. And uh, we've got a really great team. I would assembled a really great leadership team. But you know, our business partner, uh, Ross had just left the company in, in late August, 2020, and was going to go do something else. And, um, you know, I was just kind of ready for a change and, and felt like I can keep managing this business, but I don't know that I have the energy or the the kind of experience to really keep it going, um, at the pace that it needs to, um, unless I did some of what I just described. And so we started kicking the tires on, on raising a little bit of money. We had some friends and family and like a, a private equity firm in Houston that I knew one of the principals at who, you know, was always really interested in being involved with us. And so I think if we really had the desire to do it, I could have, you know, raised a few million bucks 
pretty easily given our track record where we were going um, and really gone there. Um, but I, I, we had a lot of private equity reaching out to us. 2020 was like big for logistics and valuations were like at a, at a peak. And um, so private equity was calling us uh, quite a bit. Uh, profitably, we weren't really where private equity needed us for the size of business. And, and so it didn't what, make a sorry, ton what of does sense. That mean? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of private equity firms that were were calling us at that stage were looking to do, you know, platform roll-ups, you know, and putting together a few 3PLs. And so to go through that exercise, they typically need a certain amount of cash flow to uh, support the debt that they would put on the business to go through the acquisition. And, um, you know, we were we were doing pretty well, um, but we were effectively like a break-even business, you know, the last year or so as we were investing in, in we were running two warehouses still, moving out of our old one into the new one, buying a ton of racking, hiring people to manage all that. So um, so from a from a private equity firm perspective, it, it really needed like another year to get through all of the growth, stabilize financially, and then it could make sense. And so we tabled the private equity. We, we didn't count it out, but we just said, that's not going to be a target for us. But if the right strategic comes along, um, they can probably see it. And if that happens, great. And so... Around that time, um, two two groups that I had met during 2020, just through like Zoom, uh, came along. And the first one was a great organization. We really loved what they were doing brand-wise. Uh, they were trying to build something similar to us. It was a little bit more, uh, it wasn't purely 3PL, but our services were going to, uh, excuse me, augment what they were doing. And so... Um, we looked at that deal, uh, but with the way our cap table was set up, with our partner having left the business and, and a few other kind of reasons, it just wasn't, uh, I never really like considered it seriously. We just looked at it um, at a really high level and uh, we just said, look, the deal structure won't make sense for us as, as three partners. So we, we passed on that and just said, maybe not now, but maybe later. Um, but then uh, Cart.com came along. Um, I had met the CEO uh, in 2020 on a panel that we had done about the future of e-commerce. He was still at um, at, uh, what was it? Blinds.com, which was part of Home Depot. And he was kind of intrigued by what we were doing in the logistics space. And we just, you know, we just kind of chit chatted on this call. And then, um, we reconnected that spring, um, the private equity partner that I knew and the head of, of Capital Factory, which is a, um, a VC here in town, um, heard him talking about the need for card.com to buy a 3PL and they were like, why don't you call JB? And he was like, wait, uh, the guy in Austin? And, and he was like, I know that guy. And so like literally all three of those people texted me that night. And the two the two finance guys were like, this guy wants to buy your company. And that guy, Omer, was like, hey, are you interested in selling a 3PL? And we talked and it was just like a boom, boom, boom. Like next thing I knew we were under LOI and selling the business. So wow. uh, it was really, really rapid. It's amazing what, what comes out of being on a panel. <laughs> Yeah. So you know, I mean, I, I, it's it's why I think that like doing stuff like this is so important. You know, it's it's not really a self promotion thing. It's just you know, like let people know you exist. You know, everybody's got something interesting to say. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what? Fill in a little bit of the, the backstory there. So you have yeah. a conversation. You have this initial conversation. Um, who raises the specter of of acquisition? Does the cart.com guy says, "Hey, we, we're looking to buy a company like yours. Are you interested?" Yeah, um, it, it basically, uh, you know, it, it basically started with them realizing strategically that they could get into the kind of 3PL segment a little faster to acquire rather than build. They, I mean, they had done some really fantastic work 
scanning up a network and getting some of those pieces together. But a lot of 3PL struggle, um, they, they typically start out of like an, a specific need that they're solving, which then gives them some level of specialization that they can build around. If you just sort of open your doors as a 3PL, you get a lot of disparate calls to ship large, small, whatever. It gets really tough to, to scale that. So that was a realization that, that um, they came to very quickly. Um, and so ultimately, that's why they said, you know, for what we're trying to do with, with our kind of more holistic business, this end-to-end e-commerce strategy, uh, we should just buy someone who's already gone through the 10 years of like battle scar building you know, work. A hundred percent. So how does the specter of, of money come up? Like, do they say, like, like, do they ask, what's your revenue? What's your profitability? Like, like how did, how did that all kind of come together? Yeah. So, so, um, the, the, the reason we, um, well, initially we had an idea for what we thought the partners all kind of wanted to see, um, the partners you know, being Ross. Uh, me, Pris, uh, Priscilla, and Ross. Yeah. And um, we had a sense for like what we were looking for at a high level because uh, before our, our partner had left the business, we had discussed a buyout. So we had gone through evaluation and um, I had worked with an accounting firm that, that did um, partnership buyout uh, valuations, uh, which are, are done differently. And so, you know, if you've never done evaluation, there are like, um, you know, kind of the, the easiest way to contrast is like, there's a strategic valuation, which is arguing that, you know, uh, this is worth something. This asset is worth to something to somebody outside for strategic purposes and arguably should be worth more. Um, and then a partnership buyout is typically uh, looked at as a mixture of asset and kind of future potential uh, revenues or, or profits. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things to consider there, like what are the risks of continuing to run the business? Uh, you know, what is the equity structure, right? Like arguably 49% um, uh, of equity is worth a lot less than 51 um, because you control nothing um, despite it being so similar mm-hmm. uh, or close in, 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 in amount. And with um, Ross, did you guys have like, were you all third to third to third or did you? Uh, roughly. Yeah. I, I, I had a, um, I didn't have a controlling stake. I had 50% and then um, Ross had, you know, around 30% and then my wife had about 20. Um, okay. And so collectively her and I had 70, but, but he had uh, 30, he had come on. Um, she, she had started the business with me and then um, he joined uh, about a year and some change in uh, as like kind of a consultant and then like a full-time employee. And then um, we issued some equity uh, in exchange for him sticking around and helping us kind of build in the early years. And how did you value, like what technique did you use? Was it a multiple, like how did you value the business when Ross decided to leave? Was it like what multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue? Um, I, I forget what the specifics were, but it was, it was effectively like a, um, you know, they looked at everything from cash to, you know, actual just assets on the balance sheet, revenue, et cetera. And then they basically said, um, based off of the current revenue, we think uh, it wasn't EBITDA. It was just like a revenue only. They said the business is worth X. And as a result, if you just divide by the equity, it is worth Y. And so, you know, 30% of what the valuation was that they, that the accounting firm came up with. Um, but then they also said, because it's a minority share, uh, I forget what they called it, but it was like a minority discount or uh, minority partner discount. Um, I think it was the, it was the term. Um, they said like, this is actually technically worth like 25% less than that, right? So if it was, uh, you know, a uh, million bucks, then it was worth 750. 
um, instead. And so, which was not worth a million bucks, but that was kind of the, the thinking there. And, and the argument is that uh, in the event that he were to try to sell it to somebody else, it is going to be a less marketable asset because whoever comes in will also take no controlling stake in the business. And so, um, so they're kind of just along for the ride of whatever I and potentially Priscilla agreed to do, um, you know, operationally. So that, um, so that's a, that's a thing that I think a lot of people don't always consider. Um, I had had a lot of discussions with, uh, in my forum with, with people who had businesses who had gone through similar experiences. So I had that kind of the back of my mind. Um, but that's something that, you know, definitely comes up and, and, um, you know, the, 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 the company that did the valuation, they did both things. I mean, they were like, what are all the really great ideas you have? That's worth something, you know, on paper, it's worth, where are you going? Where are the partnerships on, on and what, you know, we have a responsibility to share all that, but equally so they have to consider all the, the risks to buying any amount of the equity. And that was a, a, an aspect of it. So, um, now that valuation was sort of a baseline for us to use for, talking to cart, mm -hmm. um, we used it to kind of give like a floor of what we thought that it was. Um, but again, that, you know, when I went to them and, and talked about that, I didn't go and say, this is what we've been valued at. I, I had that in my back pocket as like ammo, as we talked through what we thought the business is worth strategically. And, um, at the time the industry was transacting typically at around three to five X EBITDA. Um, and you could see it being a little bit higher, uh, than what most businesses were, um, you know, if, if you were much larger, but if you were under about a 30 or $40 million, um, you know, three PL, you were transacting at about three to four or three to five, uh, X EBITDA, um, right in that period. And in your case, you didn't have your cash flow positive or cash flow break even. So did you. Did you do like a normalized EBITDA saying, you know, like, yeah, if we weren't going yeah. and reinvesting, this is what our EBITDA would have been? Yeah. So we, we did an adjusted EBITDA. We looked back at the trailing 12 and said, okay, what are the things that we can add back? Like if we weren't managing two warehouses, this is a cost that we wouldn't have. If we weren't, you know, uh, carrying the extra labor to manage the move, this would be added back, et cetera. And we landed at, you know, a normalized EBITDA that was within industry standard um, for kind of what you would expect a business to be doing. Um, we also accounted for things like we knew that our Shopify contract wasn't great. And so like if that, if we walked away from it, our revenue would come down, but our profit, uh, profitability would go up. Or if we normalized and renegotiated that contract, then we could get, you know, our EBITDA to X and that would sort of, so it created like a band that said, okay, our business is this size, you know, the industry typically profits between like seven and 10% to the bottom line, kind of just like middle of the road. And can we normalize to that and feel good about it? Or is that like a bridge too far? Mm -hmm. And so we normalized to something in that range. And then we said, all right, well, where do we feel comfortable with that, about that? And we, we all took things into consideration. I mean, you know, CART took things like our debt and, you know, uh, the, the stuff that we had to get through in terms of the move and all of that, and maybe some labor costs into account. Um, and we took our ability to move quickly into account. Um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people discount when they're building their business is how important it is to have clean books and really, really clean compliance around HR and people. Um, and I had never sold my business before. And although my attorney had done a ton of M&A, he was a really close friend and knew, you know, how to run all this stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that he really stressed to us and, and um, when I when I asked, uh, you know, Omer, the, the CEO at, at CART, I was like, what, 
what's going to scuttle this deal? You know, we both, we were in love and we want to like do this deal. We felt really confident before we got to an LOI, like what we needed to do. Um, and I asked him like, what will scuttle this? Cause I never sold a company before. And he said, you know, skeletons in the closet. It's like, I don't know what they are. These are typically what will stress me out. People risks tax, you know, stuff that's like, you don't just get around, you know, um, that's what's going to scare me. And I, that was like a huge relief for me because we had spent so much time early on investing in a really good accounting firm. Uh, our people compliance was really good. You know, just cause my wife ran people didn't mean she let me off easy. Like it was good. And so when we got into due diligence, once we got the LOI nailed down, once we got to due diligence, it was like, wow, it's really easy to find everything that you need. And that, that just like evokes confidence that you, that you're buying a good asset and that really like sped the process up. And, and for us, it provided a lot of conviction that the company was worth, you know, more than what like the EBITDA was indicating at the time. Um, not to mention that our client list was stellar. I mean, I, you know, I think like every 3PL that we talked to in those days was like, wow, how the hell did you guys get all these clients? You know, between <laughs> Shopify, Tecovis, uh, Bill Murray was a client. You know, I mean, like he came to our warehouse. We, we just had this like aura around us that was worth something that, that you know, was additional. You mentioned debt. How was the debt handled? Um, so, you know, we, we arrived at like a, a general sort of like enterprise value, um, that accounted for some debt. Um, and you know, you'll have in an acquisition, what's called like a networking capital adjustment that will take place, um, basically through the process, you'll go through due diligence, um, and through the diligence, you'll also typically on the front end of that process. So, so for us, it was, you know, Amir reached out to us. I got a text message in late May. We spent a lot of time on the phone for a couple of weeks, calling, talking about where our views were about the business, the industry, et cetera. They came and visited us, et cetera. Um, and then in like early June, we were like, all right, this feels good. Let's get to an LOI. We spent a lot of time on the LOI. Um, and that was through the suggestion of our attorney, which he said, look, like you're going to, both of you are going to uncover a lot of stuff through due diligence. So work out the deal structure as early as you can. Just get to the high level stuff, title, comp you know, earn outs, like all of the minutia, everything that you think you'll get hung up about personally, do it now. And if y'all are a thousand feet apart on this, then the deal's going to fall apart when you get to the finish line. So just do this now. So we spent a lot of time on that. And then as soon as we were done with that, um, I mean, we worked out little things like if the deal goes through, they're going to pay us, you know, X for our legal fees that we're going to incur. They're going to cover this. They're going to cover that. Um, this was going to be my title at the company, et cetera. So everybody was like really happy. And we're like, great. Sent the LOI over, you know, got Ross's buy-in, got Priscilla's buy-in, signed it, had an emotional moment. And then it was like, okay, now the real work starts. So the next day a woman came in uh, to do quality of earnings. So she did like forensics on our accounting, make sure that like what we're saying is our revenue is real. And so that was a big process. Took about a week and a half. And then due diligence was 30 days, which was crazy for a deal of our size. Um, but basically in the quality of earnings, what they do is an analysis on not only like, what is your, what are your books look like and are they real? Um, but then just like, what do we think arguably the business should have in terms of cash at close, right? Like you sell the business, uh, we think that it needs to have a quarter million dollars or a million bucks in the bank. And if we're going to pay you, call it, you know, five or $10 million dollars, how much of that should come out of our pocket versus yours. And so if we agree that we're going to pay you, you know, five or $10 million for this business, and that's what we're willing to pay as the acquirer, then how much of that 
does not go to you, but instead goes to shoring up the business or the other way around. Maybe there's more money that we give you because there's more cash in the business, et cetera. Right. So that networking capital adjustment is like an important number that like matters a lot in, in a deal. And so in our case, we had debt that um, was a mixture of like the credit cards that we used for paying off our, you know, the postage every month. And it was just a rotating line. And then we had like, you know, debt that we had taken on to manage the move and some things like that. And so we said, we would like, you know, my, my wife, Ross and I kind of backed into a number. We said like, we want to see this much cash up front. We're willing to roll, you know, those of us that were going to move on with the business, um, we're willing to roll some equity. And that number kind of came in a little low, um, given that they wanted us to come with the business, Priscilla and I. So we basically said, we want to see this much cash to the partners. Um, we'd like to see this much rolled equity and this much of an earnout um, if we have to come and work there for any amount of time. And then there's debt. And so they kind of looked at all those numbers together and they said, all right, this, the debt wipes out this much. And then this much is what we have to play with and kind of figure out, you know, effectively where all that goes. And so we found a, you know, if we just walked away from the business, they felt like the company was worth this much. And so that was like effectively what the cash was. And then they said, if you come along, you and Priscilla come along and help us grow the business and hit some specific objectives, then we'll give you this much equity for being here for longer. And then if you hit these financial targets, which were, they were like goals I and mean, they had to grow the business, um, then we'll give you this additional cash. And so for them, it de-risked it. And so as a total kind of enterprise value, it was one round number, but like a portion of it was technically at risk, whether based off of whether or not I could, you know, uh, get the ball across the finish line, so to speak, you know, with, with like growth, et cetera. So. Got it. That's helpful. So it was a kind of four part structure. I know your time is yep. precious. Do you have time for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got a little bit more time. Yeah. Cool. Uh, slimiest, most questionable trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of, uh, either raising investment, talking to a, you know, outside investors, acquirers. You know, um, I wouldn't say that I really had any tricks that played out. Um, but I think that I, like, I've heard stories from people about, and this is why the LOI matters, uh, of like retrades that kind of happen at, at the, like the goal line. And so the LOI, although all, like 99% of the time is non-binding matters because it's just like this emotional document you can go back to and say, like, I thought we were on the same page. Um, what I've found people run into and, and like, as I've talked to other founders who've sold the biggest issue, like earnouts are a thing that a lot of people sign up for and it feels really great. And everybody's in love when you close the deal, but they're, they're probably the number one tripwire that I hear other founders kind of like running into and then like not getting their full value. Right. Like I sold my business for 10 million, a million was cash up front and nine was an earnout. <laughs> and then like, I'll ask like, well, what was your earnout structure? And they'll say, I had to hit an EBITDA number. But then there's a clause in the, in the contract that says the acquirer can run the business however they'd like, which means you can get sidelined. They saddle this thing up and move a bunch of stuff from one column to the other. And now the EBITDA is wiped out. They never owe you an additional dime. Like that, I hear about that all the time. I, that did not happen to me. You know, like we, we were in a very, you know, uh, I had a really great attorney who looked at some of those things. And, and so there were parts of our, our, you know, employment agreement that had the earnout in it that said like, you know, we, we can run the business however they, you know, we like. And we said, great, that's awesome. But if we agree that like this earnout is kind of meant to sort of compensate me for being here, 
how can we protect that? You know, and like before you get into the nitty gritty of what you uncover, et cetera, it's great to work that stuff out. And again, we we had a really agreeable like acquisition. Um, you know, it was a, a great LOI kind of process, and and Omer was was fantastic and and really um, agreeable to a lot of those considerations for us. You know, that were very emotional for us as the sellers. Um, but like this is something I hear a lot of uh, people run into, and so it's it's really like the slime isn't intentional, um, but like. Things can feel slimy to both parties is maybe the better way to say that. And, and so if the acquirers, they get to the finish line, they're like, wait, what is this thing that you, like you didn't tell us about, you know, or like they wait till close and then the acquirer is like, oh, yeah, by the way, like I forgot all this like tax problem that, that I didn't mention, you know, and like I figured out a way to like not rep and warranty. You know, so that's it, it's like a, everybody hates being sold a bad bill of goods. And so, uh, but everybody's also like in a rush to close a deal and get the cash. And so um, I just think that uh, the more that you can kind of take the time and just be honest, uh, the better. And, and being honest, the ability to be honest is predicated on you just like having your shit together ahead of time, you know? So yeah. I, I, I had a guy basically say like, run a really healthy, clean business because best case scenario, you get to sell and value a really healthy, clean business. And worst case, you run a really healthy and clean business, you know? So that, that just was our mindset going into it that helped prevent yeah. that. Yeah. We had Jay Steinfeld, the guy from blinds.com on the, on the, on the show years ago now. And he said, yeah, like run it like it's public because yeah. I'm thrilled that you did. Um, so, so Omer, Omer actually worked for Jay and yeah. uh, Jay's a great guy. Um, awesome, awesome guy. And, and uh, I've met him, you know, once or twice. And Have I you? love that guy. It's, it's yeah. 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 It's a great, yeah. it's easy. He's, he's a great inspiration for sure. What did you guys tie your earn out to? Was it revenue? Uh, yeah, there were some, uh, kind of revenue targets specifically around like the business that we were uh, running. And so, um, you know, it put me in a really great position where we could think, you know, like really big and say, you know, Hey, maybe it's not just like our building. It's, it's the whole thing. Um, I'm, you know, I like building in public. And I like, you know, bringing in, um, you know, clients. And so over time, you know, cart had a really great, like leaned in in a really, you know, great way into fulfillment and saw it as a, as an op opportunity to really, enter into deeper relationships and conversations with customers. Um, and so for me, um, that was, that was awesome. And their like kind of buying and fulfillment was, uh, made it really easy, uh, to like do well with, with my agreement and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I've, I've heard everything under the sun. I've heard like, you know, some, some companies doing like, you know, revenue, I've heard EBITDA, I've heard customer count, I've heard you just have to be here. Um, and, uh, and so there, there are a lot of ways to kind of dice it, but, um, you know, we had a, an attorney who had just seen a lot. And so he was able to really, uh, car was never trying to put anything over on us, um, which was like apparent as we went through the process, like anything we asked for, they were pretty typically like, you know, we, we just get on like an issues call and say, here's, here's how this makes me feel. What was your intent with it? And then you go, what was this? And we'd say, well, can we just like change this slightly? And they go, yeah, no big deal. Great. Like we're, we're trying to protect our interests. You're trying to protect yours. Let's just find a win-win situation. And that, um, that's something I was really thankful for is, uh, in the process. What was the biggest mistake you made personally in selling your company? I think, um, I didn't really, uh, I don't call it a mistake per se, but I think, you know, mentally a lot of founders, uh, that I've spoken with and certainly myself, like you don't really think a lot about like, what does life afterwards feel like for you and, and where can you be most effective? Um, you know, there's a guy that I follow on Twitter that has made this comment that it's actually 
better for everybody if the founder just leaves right away. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake because I, I like I learned a ton. Um, you know, the team there was fantastic. We recruited some really incredible people at, at CART. And, and I, I learned a lot about go to market and a lot of other things that I just really didn't have to do at my company and taught me about like future future stuff that I want to work on. But I think, you know, um, it's tough mentally as, as a founder to like join a business. And, um, you know, I describe it as being like a former president the day after, like you still get your CIA briefings, but nobody really gives a shit what you think. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I say that like to be playful, but like, you know, I had a big seat at the table and, you know, I talked to Amir a lot. I, I ran communications for the company and, uh, you know, I got to fly around and do a lot of work with the fulfillment company. So I, I had a, a seat at the table, but, um, but you lose agency. You know, and, and depending upon your your like, you know, the acquirer that you you work with, like you may or may not have that seat at the table. And so, you know, for me, uh, it, it was less about like I regretted selling um, or regretted uh, anything or felt like I made a mistake and, and more about like the the mental shift was just something that was important. And, um, you know, Amir was always really great. Like if I'd call him and just say, hey, this doesn't feel like it's working or like, Hey, um, you know, I remember with fulfillment, like as it was really growing, I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm the guy for you to run operations. You know, like we bought this other 3PL. I think there's a way for them to be really successful with what we're doing. How else can I help in the company? Like that, that was a good mental shift. And he was like, yeah, great. Like, let's get, actually, let's go put you over here. Let, let's get you running comms, doing the stuff that you were loving at, at you know, your company, um, and so I, I think like the, the biggest mistake was maybe like waiting too long to ask for those things. Hmm. Um, but you know, again, I think it's just, it, it, it's true whether you get sold or you buy it, you, you get bought out or whatever, like open communication is just important. And, um, and I think that was something that, uh, I learned in a really big way. And, you know, I, I used to tell my employees all that time, that all the time, like, why aren't y'all speaking up more? Like, you know, use the channels and. Uh, somehow it like was lost on me, but I'd never been an employee before. So that was, uh, that was a navigation that I had to kind of What did they do with the, uh, Sosedo name? Um, they kept it for a while. Uh, you know, Cart acquired like nine companies. It was crazy. I mean, we bought, we were like, as a comms guy, it was a lot of fun because we had like a press release about an acquisition. Like it felt like every other day. It was awesome. Uh, and, and for a while to like, really like lean into the brand equity, it was like Sosedo by Cart.com or, you know, um, you know, AmeriCommerce by card.com. But over time, like they kind of get folded into the, the network. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we kept the, the core values posters. Uh, my, we have them hanging up in our house. Hmm. Um, my, my wife, like we'd never actually put posters up. So like maybe a month before we sold, she had some designed and like printed and they were like up in the warehouse for a little while before the acquisition like closed. And so we got to keep those as like a memento. But um but yeah, you know, they, they kept a, a lot of the, I mean, there were little practices, like we used to hire mariachis to come into the warehouse, like right before peak season. And um, they would do some of those things. And then like, uh, there was like a shout out channel that we had that was like a really big part of our culture on Slack. And we made our desk list workers use Slack a lot and they got really involved with it. And so that became like woven into the cart culture. My, my wife actually became um, a, a uh, you know, one, one of the, the heads of, of culture and, and people strategy under the chief people officer at CART. And so a lot of the cultural practices that we had at our company, you know, Omer asked, he was like, make the Salcedo way, like our way, you know, like how, how do we like take those things and scale them up and do them across the business? And so um, that was a, a, you know, fun thing to see kind of live on like the DNA, you know, the name was sort of irrelevant. It was like, finally, the name's off the wall, you know, 
Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the website's down and all that kind of stuff is gone. And, and is what's your reaction to that? I'm curious. Like, uh, I can see on one hand, it might be great. My name's not on the door. I'm not going to get calls from any customers anymore. But also, it's I imagine there's maybe some sense of loss that you feel for. Like, yeah. Well, I don't put words in your mouth. You tell me. No, no, no. I no. That that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's emotional to watch a company that you built, like, you know, despite all of the wins, right? Like, we are in a better position than we were before we sold it financially. Our people are paid a lot more. You know, like, Cart was so great. You know, when we were going through that acquisition at the very beginning, uh, I remember we had stuff that we had to do just because we were about to become part of a larger company. And we, you know, Saheb, who was leading the deal on their side, um, and I like talked through a lot of the people stuff. And like, there were policies we had to implement that were like not going to be everyone's favorite, but they're just part of like growing up, you know. And uh, we, like Priscilla and I, owned those, and we said like a month before we closed, like these are changes we have to make. And people like, ah, oh, bummer, you know, whatever. But they got over it. But then all the great stuff, like pay raises and four hundred one k, like we had a guy fall out of his chair, like he was doing it on purpose, but like we didn't have four hundred one k at our company. You know, and so, so there were like aspects of it that were really awesome to see, um, you know, within the construct of cart, our business had more people plucked kind of from within the business and, and get sort of hired into other, you know, white collar roles elsewhere in, in support or sales or whatever. And that was a really gratifying feeling for us to, to see that and, and know that we'd hired really great people that emotionally was awesome. Um, but you know, like with any business, I mean, much like some of our clients had historically, they'd come, my, our people would come to me and be like, hey, we're having this challenge. Can you help with this or that? And I didn't always have all the agency to go solve those problems anymore. You know, I had to say, like, you have to trust the process, trust the system, you know? And so that wasn't tough. I mean, I could call anybody and say, like, hey, Saheb, hey, so-and-so, can you look into this? And they would. Um, so there was a lot of collaboration there. Um, but, you know, that changed. And so emotionally, it was tough to, like, see people that you've been working with for eight years, seven years uh, off doing their own thing, you know? Um, but I, I take a lot of pride now in seeing those uh, people again, excelling in a business. They, they have a career trajectory and opportunity that they would have never had under our business, or maybe it would have taken a lot longer under our business alone that they had a cart. Um, but you know, even outside of that, I mean, a bunch of people that used to work for me are now at another 3PL in South Austin that, uh, one guy who left before we sold the company has now recruited some people, and he's got like a little mini version of Salseda. They're doing some really great stuff there in their own way. And they've, uh, you know, taken some of what they learned from Priscilla and, and our company. And like, they're doing that there. And it's awesome. I, it like really, it gets me choked up, you know? And, um, you know, and so, so seeing that, especially for a lot of people, like I, I flunked out of college. So to seeing a lot of these people who started literally for us cutting cardboard boxes for $12 an hour, running a 3PL, you know, that is worth any and all of, of, of the kind of anguish of like, what do I do with myself? You know, like who gives a shit? You'll figure it out. You know, <laughs> like, um, so I don't know. It's, it, it, it's, I'm not trying to be altruistic, but there's like an altruistic aspect of like selling a company that feels really damn good. You know, if you can do it the right way. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're a bottleneck for some employees to get to their next thing. If you yeah. stay too long, for sure. It's interesting. Yeah. As you prepared your exit, I, for your exit, what resources, it sounds like you leaned heavily on your EO chapter. You mentioned a guy mm -hmm. on Twitter you follow. Can you share his or her name? 
Uh, there are a few. Uh, one of the biggest ones that I really like is Michael Gurgley. Um, he's a great follow as like a, he really describes himself as like, I'm a leader, not a manager. And uh, he's got this kind of great insight on um, writing a like how to work with me document that gives mm. you a sense of like who he is as a CEO. And he's kind of shifted into being this like holding company leader as opposed to being the guy, you know, he's like a zero to one guy. And then he's like, I'm going to screw this up. Got to get out of it. And then he shifts into these other kind of like roles. And we'll put him in the show notes for sure. Anyone else that you leaned on for advice, anything else you can point our listeners to? Um, um, Kurt Schneider, who is in Houston, he's an EOS implementer. Um, I call him like my business dad. Um, <laughs> you know, we haven't worked with him as an EOS implementer in two and a half, three years. And I still call him all the time. I, you know, like I'm going to have a meeting with him tomorrow oh, that's um, so for one of the companies that I'm, I consult with right now. And uh, yeah. And so um, Kurt Schneider is, you know, he's one of many EOS implementers, but um, I just, I think that his sort of selflessness and approach to like service of others is, is just so great. Um you know, I, I would say actually of, of all things that really like clicked for me, um, Patty McCord's powerful book is like my culture Bible. Um, you know, she's known for writing the Netflix culture deck, which is, you know, is like a today, 20 years later is like, a is it really the right way to build a business culture, et cetera? Like there's sure an argument to be made about that, but the mindset with which that they had to, that went into writing that. And then the way that the Netflix story kind of played out and her self-awareness about how it affected her and eventually got her fired, frankly, um, was really like, you know, transformational for me wow. to just read about how to like do, uh, like turning culture into small ball instead of thinking it's like these big motions and really expensive. It's like, there's some really basic things about how you talk to people and, how you in basic practices you can do that really like get you unstuck as a leader. And so, um, that book, I, I just love. What did you and Priscilla buy yourselves collectively for, to, to commemorate the win? What, what was your trophy? Um, what was our trophy? Uh, well, for one, you can't really see it, but, um, you know, after years of working together, uh, like on our couch, we built an office in our backyard. So and it's like maybe a lame thing to go spend some of your money on. Um, and it wasn't like really that expensive, but that was one thing we just we were like, we love work. We love working together, but get it the hell out of our house and like off of the couch. And so that was uh, one thing, um, you know, we didn't really have any crazy expenses, you know? I mean, what was funny is like we renovated the house and everybody thought that we had, had like used the money from the sale to do it. And we're like, no, actually, we had done like a cash out refi like three months before. And I mean, if you remember that time period, 2020, 2021, like the banks were taking forever. And so closing on that refinance was like a three month process. It was ridiculous. And like the money closed like a week after we closed on the sale. And so it was like, we didn't really need to do it, but it, it, that happened and we we're like, whatever, let's just go ahead and do it. And so, um, so yeah, I, I would say actually of all the things that we did, uh, you know, I, I left, I, I, you know, got laid off in, um, January, um, which was, you know, uh, you know, emotionally kind of weird, but ultimately a good situation for me, given my kind of, um, you know, employment agreement and earn out and all that it was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, fine and, and happy. Uh, Priscilla quit in May ready, mostly cause she was just ready for a change of pace. And so, uh, I joked that they liked her more clearly cause they kept her around for another four months, but, uh, five months, but, um, we decided in January, we were going to go take a two month trip with our family. 
and we talked to our financial advisor and I was like, you know, I, I think I want to go, I've got this time. I've been forced to like, stop. I'm going to stop, maybe do a few consulting gigs, but I'm going to chill out. Priscilla wants to kind of take a break before she goes on to the next thing. And, um, we think we want to go like burn 30 or 40 K on just like a summer long trip between like living expenses and like the trip. And our, uh, financial advisor stopped me mid sentence. And he's like, do not call that burn. That is an investment in your family that I guarantee you in 15, 20 years when your kids are off at college, and you don't see them anymore. You will be so happy that you spent. So he was like, take the, the L, you know, the step backwards financially, however, you know, a small, it, you'll, it'll feel in a few years, who gives a shit burn 30 or 40 K on that. You will not forget it. And like, you know, I'm like fighting, getting emotional about it because it was just that two months, you know, that I, I can't, uh, I can't put a price on. Cause I, you know, I think a lot about what the, the seven years of building that company was and, you know, the number of like five to six o'clock hour work sessions where I was hammering out some stupid email that drove no additional enterprise value to my company in the long run that I wish that I had been at home, but I was too self-important to think that I shouldn't keep working. I should go home. And, um, you know, I know that now and I've like built these really strong boundaries. And you know, I mean, in fact, Priscilla and I like, we kind of use pieces of EOS to design like a, like a, a family corporate strategy. Wow. And, um, yeah, which I could talk a whole hour about, but, uh, but one of the, we did that in December before I got laid off. And in January when that happened and we were like, all right, what next? We were like, you know, flexibility and, and family first is like one of our, you know, one of the pieces of this like framework. And so we were like, we're going like, let's just do it. And so we, we did 15 national parks 10,000 miles, uh, 60 days. And our, we have a fifth wheel travel trailer that we've had for a few years and we just lived on the road for two months. And, um, you know, my colleagues at some of the companies I've been consulting were super flexible with me and I would kind of work and do some emails and stuff in the afternoon, but we would get up at like five or six in the morning and we'd go hike Zion, the Grand Canyon, you know, Yosemite. I mean, we had, uh, the most magical summer and, you know, the last day that we were in Colorado Springs before we started driving home, we were in, um, I forget the name of the, uh, the, the national forest that's up there, but we were in the national forest outside of uh, Pagosa Springs. And uh, we packed up the trailer and my wife and I, like the kids were in the truck, truck was running, everything's ready to go. And we just like started crying and it was like, wow, this was so worth it. And um, it was just such an emotional moment for us to like realize like this was what it was all about, you know? And so, um, we came home. I cut, I always do these like videos of a filmmaker early in my career. So I made this like 90 second, 100, 110 second, like little vignette, like quick cut time to Claire DeLune. And the four of us in our family, we watch it all of us like instant tears. It's just like, I wish I could go back to that, you know? And so, um, I think of all the learnings and the biggest thing that like came out of this experience was that like, it was the, what the hell are we working for? We finally got the answer. And, um, and, and the answer was like to build better boundaries around life and, and like in whatever format that needs to be. Um, so you can prioritize the right things, you know, and that's in companies, right? Like we have to prioritize what to work on and not, and, and more importantly for us, like personally. And so, you know, we, we looked at our family as, as a quote unquote commodity of like days and weekends that we have with one another before we're all doing other things. And, and when we realized that we can keep making money, but we can't keep creating days with our kids, that became the priority. And that was, uh, 
I think that was probably the best thing to come out of the business, you know, out, out of everything. So it's awesome. Awesome. So glad yeah. you shared that. Really appreciate yeah. that. I think that's a good, uh, a good way to end the, um, Folks are going to want to reach out to you, uh, yeah. learn a little bit about maybe just walk through very briefly what you're, you're, you're up to, cause you're helping a few people articulate their story a little bit better and maybe tell people how, how they can reach you if they want to, if they want to connect. Yeah, I, I've started uh, kind of a, a loose set of engagements with a, a handful of CEOs who liked what I was doing before I sold during and, and after. Um, and so now I, I'm, I've got a, a few practices that I use with companies um, to coach uh, somewhere between like corporate strategy and, and like brand strategy um, on like how to build in public. And so, um, you know, it, it touches on to some extent, some of what you touched on today about, uh, you know, how like, I mean, today more than ever, CEO is brand and brand is CEO. Um, but how do you, you leverage that while also not making it a hindrance to the ability, the ability to exit and or like operate? Um, so I, I've, I've spent a, a bit of time, you know, working in businesses with leaders, um, you know, on some of those practices. And in some instances, it's like, come in and help me figure out, like, get us unstuck. Like, how do we get out of this? I'm in the middle of everything problem. And I can be very direct and, and helpful with, with leaders in that way. And then in other instances, it's like, we're running pretty well. We just need to figure out how to like actually take our content and storytelling ideas and turn them into scalable practices rather than just like, I had an idea for LinkedIn today. And so, um, so I, I've dog fooded, you know, like some of my own kind of exercises that I learned, you know, partially in, in supporting Amer and, and, and uh, cart.com and, um, and, and looked back at my career uh, between my photography, uh, design studio, Texas Humor and Salseda and said, what, what are those things that I was using? Um, and just put a system around them. And so I'm doing that right now. Um, I, I don't think I'll do it forever, but uh, for people and leaders that are trying to like learn that, um, that have reached out, I've, I've been able to uh, set up some some small engagements that are kind of one time, two time, and then others that are more ongoing. But, um, you know, long term, I, uh, I just really want to spend time uh, really helping leaders get unstuck. You know, even as I go build other businesses, um, I think the, the pay it forward mindset that I, I benefited from, from a lot of people who've been there before is something that I want to, uh, certainly participate in. And so, you know, if anything that I said today resonates with you and at a minimum, you just want to have a online coffee or you're in Austin and want to grab a ranch water, um, you can find me, uh, just might spell my name out J A Y B S A U C E D A on Twitter, Instagram, or, uh, anywhere else. And, and you can track me down pretty easily. Thanks for listening to today's podcast between John and JB. If you enjoyed today's show, then as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And as a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full video interview, I'd encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel and type in at Built to Sell Radio. Also, if you want to help support the show, then you can do so by sharing this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some of the more technical terms that JB and John used, you can head over to JB's episode page, which you can find at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.